When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Is 75 bips baked in? Welcome to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. It's Friday, October 21st, 2022. I'm Ash Bennington, joined today by Warren Pies, founder of 314 Research. Quick reminder, our live chat function on the Real Vision site is temporarily down. So please drop us your questions in the comment section of the Real Vision website, uh, in the live chat on YouTube or on Twitter at Real Vision. So really quick, I wanted to do a quick word from our sponsors. In other words, from Real Vision, we've just launched a groundbreaking new series called Three Ideas, when we explore three actionable investment opportunities with an industry-leading expert. Here's what people are saying. Love, love, love the show. Awesome format. Love this extremely well done. You can now get access to every episode in this series and all the investment ideas for just $99 a year. Sign up now. All right, back to the show. Warren, it's great to have you on with us. First time you and I are doing this. Really excited today. Yeah, it's good to be back. It's been a little bit of time. Um, so it's always good to be on Daily Briefing. Warren, I was reading one of your research notes uh, from earlier today. I just wanted to set this up for us because I think this really does frame out exactly where you're coming from right now and say the frame for this conversation. Quote, our base case is that from here, Regardless of forward monetary policy, CPI is on the downward trajectory. The Fed, however, has made it clear that it will not stop with the current tightening cycle until CPI has reverted to 2%-ish. If you take Powell at his word, the Fed will not pivot until CPI is back to target and the labor market has balance. And then I just, I just wanted to sum this up a few paragraphs later. Put simply, if the data, i.e. CPI plus labor, improves quickly, the path to a soft landing widens. Stubborn data, stubborn data, or a Fed too hesitant to heed its message will lead to a hard landing. More than any time we can remember, getting the timing and direction of the key data points correct will determine the effectiveness of the strategy. That really sets it up quite nicely. Warren, give us a little bit of context. What do you mean here and why is it so important? Well, I appreciate uh, you reading uh, our reporting so you can kind of set the table that way. What we're trying to say is there's a real tension building in the market right now. And like we said, more than any time we can remember, getting these kind of fine points of data correct, it's really going to resolve that tension. So the tension we see is when does this data uh, do what the Fed needs it to do in order to back off on policy. And the on the other side is the economy and most important to the market's earnings. And that's the tension. We're trying to see, can these data points, whether it's the labor market, uh, various components of the CPI or the CPI in general, will that come into the Fed's comfort zone while the economy is still intact? Because the economy as of now is still doing okay, but there's a time limit on how long this economy can handle, you know, seven percent mortgage rates and, and higher interest rates and these these high this high of real interest rates in general, and so that's the tension that we're setting up. And in order to resolve, I think each one of these days 
in order to resolve that tension, the market is weighing these new data points, uh, leaks by the Fed through their fa chosen channels, and deciding, you know, is this uh, is the data moving faster than we had thought yesterday, and how is that relative to earnings? So that's the tension that we see going forward. Yeah, very well said, very well framed. Let's unpack that a little bit, Warren. Talk about what you see when you look at the data, what the significance is, and what your interpretation is. Right. So, I mean, there's so much data at any given time. And so you really have to take a step back. And in number one, I think Powell's a, people criticize the Fed and Powell all day long, but he's been very clear. He's said what he, he thinks is going on, even if he's wrong. And he's told you where he's looking. And I think those are to his credit. So number one, uh, he in his Jackson Hole speech, he talked about an un imbalanced labor market. And he thinks there's more job openings than job seekers. And, and that, to me, is coming straight from the JOLTS data. So you know that's the first data point. You want to see that JOLTS data, which is showing outsized job openings versus job uh, seekers. And I've seen a lot of bears and kind of inflationistas use that as a jumping off point into a wage price spiral thesis. Uh, we don't see it that way. If you look at the, jo the JOLTS report, number one, I think there's, uh, there's some weird stuff going on post-pandemic and once the work from home boom really took off. And so the first way we can identify this is by breaking out the various industries covered in the JOLTS report. We're seeing office jobs, job openings surge relative to construction jobs. And that's the chart that Brian's showing right now. So we've we've seen yeah. peak to trough. There was well over a million uh, of these professional service jobs added within that report. Uh, construction jobs is like 100,000. If you look at it on a percentage basis, it's been a, it's the office jobs have been growing at double the pace of construction jobs. And from our view, work from home uh, is is partially responsible for that. When you untether a job from a specific location, you make it easier to make an opening and offer these jobs out there. And so to me, that's that's part of the issue. The other very, and I have to credit uh, my partner, Fernando, for digging this piece up, and I really haven't seen this discussed anywhere else, is the response rate to the JOLTS report has plummeted in the last two years. So you're only getting... Pre-pandemic, it was a 60% response rate to that survey, and now you're getting a 30% response rate. And the way the jolts, not to bore anyone, but this is where we got to get really fine grain with our right. analysis of the data. Because these, this is what Powell's talking about. So we better understand it really well and what's driving it. And when you get into that response rate and how they impute non-respondents, they basically impute the industry average for the responders, which is now only a small sliver of the, the only 30% of businesses are responding to the survey. They're imputing their growth rates and their trends into the non-respondents. All the academic uh, research says that the non-respondents are actually struggling businesses. So the net net of all this is that we are going to have a way more over-optimistic look at the jobs market when you filter it through the analytical tools in the current environment or from home of the JOLTS report. And so, you know, that's what we looked at in that last report was breaking that apart from a few different angles and really demystifying this idea that, you know, even a normal recession or a deep recession is not going to restore balance to the jobs market. We just think that you're going to see job openings shed really quickly. We just saw a million in the last month fall off. That's going to be a trend. I think that's going to become 
a bullish catalyst. So that's that's part one. Um, part two would be, and we can I won't go into each one as detailed, and you can give me those questions. But like part two would be services x shelter. I think that's the really sticky part of CPI. We need to see that rollover. Uh, you know, historically. Let me just break in real quick sure. and, and just ask for a little bit of context on this because I think this is one of the things that makes your report so interesting. Uh, as you break down sort of in a more granular format, uh, some of these data points, for example, the distortions you see in the labor market based on the reporting uh, of the of office jobs specifically. So when you talk about this, uh, services versus goods inflation and this specific component, give us a little bit broader context for people who don't follow those reports as closely as you do. What are they? What do they mean and why are they so significant in this kind of balance of terror that we see right now in the economy between rising prices and figuring out where the labor market is headed next? Well, I, I mean, the, the the bottom line is the big fears. We, we had this wave of kind of goods inflation and now we're seeing wages tick up. And, right. and the, the fear is that this is going to spiral into a general price level uh, increase, which would you know be referred to as a wage price spiral. And so, the idea is we can look at these. Let's kinds say of just for people who don't know what a wage price spiral is, gives gives a little context about how you can basically see those uh, inflation numbers feeding through in a cyclical way, driving up uh, labor as well as uh, final goods inflation. Yeah, I mean, it would be that the higher wages feeds on higher prices and there's this nasty feedback loop that comes back into, you know, the wage market and we can't, and the genie's out of the bottle and it becomes a, historically, when you study periods of inflation, it's a very difficult, uh, it, once it gets out of the bottle, it's very difficult to get it back. And that's the big fear for, for the Fed. I mean, the Fed's looking back at, like, we don't want to end up in a place where we're in the late 70s, early 80s, where we... We put off fighting the inflation dragon so long, and I think that's the that's the last war we're fighting. And so there is a lot of concern. It's a legitimate concern. There are true structural tightening that we've seen in the labor market. You know, we've seen the participation rate fall by about one percent coming out of the pandemic, and so that means there are less workers. There's about two million less workers available in the economy, which is obviously going to push up the you know wages somewhat and cause some imbalances. But what I've seen is that the JOLTS report, that's the the job openings and turnover survey, right? That's that's the the newfangled data set that everyone in the macro world is grabbing hold of. And it's actually getting one step over the 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 labor economy and looking at openings versus seekers. So how are, you know, kind of that leading indicator of, of the labor economy. And if you see what we saw before this last labor, this last JOLTS report, which comes out monthly, was 6 million more job openings than job seekers. We've never seen that before in the history of this, this data set, which goes back to about 2000. And so everyone's looking at that and they're saying, look, your typical recession, you lose two and a half million job openings. Oh my God, we're 6 million over at a 6 million overhang right now. Even a recession is not going to balance this labor, labor market. Therefore, wages are going to continue higher. Wage price spiral that we talked about is we're, we're right at that. And that's going to, and so CPI is going to continue higher. Inflation has to, or in, interest rates have to go higher. The Fed's in this perpetual catch up mode, if that's true. And that's kind of the bearish thesis. And that's how you get kind of paralyzed and, and, can, and think that, you know, you start reworking all your valuations. The market has to go down to account for that. All that, all you know, those those horrible dominoes start to fall. We're going to take a quick break and be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. 
Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Let's talk about another component of this that you mentioned in the report and go into in some detail uh, this notion of shelter inflation, how it's calculated, uh, owner's equivalent rent. All of these terms uh, of art that we hear so often from economists, give us the 50,000-foot overview, Warren, on what that means. Yeah, so the the core inflation, to step back, is core inflation is basically ex-food and energy. And that's what historically the Fed, and up until really this year, has really trained everyone to look at. It's like, we really want to look at this, this core inflation. And of the overall CPI, just under a third is shelter inflation, which makes sense. So home ownership, renting, you know, that's that's in shelter inflation. And if you break shelter inflation apart, it's really like 24% something called owner's equivalent rent and a little over 7% regular old rent. And that's how you get to your one third of, of shelter inflation. And owner's equivalent. So, so in other words, you, you don't have owners uh, basically being counted based on mortgage payments. You have this other calculation that's done to equate uh, effectively the cost of living in a house or a, a home that you own with a rental price so that you kind of can allegedly compare apples to apples. Exactly. So they're, the, they're going out and actually asking homeowners, hey, how much would you rent your house for? And that becomes the basis for owner's equivalent rent, which is about a quarter of the total CPI. It's kind of a weird thing. We've all kind of accepted it. The thing that is the accepted kind of standard rule is this works with a lag because this is, you know, it takes homeowners a while to notice how rents change and then incorporate that into their into their answers to the survey and whatnot. And so traditionally you think of owner's equivalent rent, which is again, a 24% of CPI as working with about an 18 month lag from home prices. And so everyone said, okay, home prices take a year to a year and a half to work into the CPI. Well, this time around, we've seen owner's equivalent rent deviate much higher than you would expect from that really basic model of lagged home prices. So what's going on there? Well, owner's equivalent rent is now tracking the the rental market more generally. So it's kind of getting like what you said, it's getting back everything on that rental page. And so owners of equivalent rent is tracking in this cycle, just rental in general. And we found some real weird things that are going on with the rental market that I think are kind of unintuitive when you first see them and, and will impact the data next year and set up some interesting dilemmas for the Fed. Yeah. So I also wanted to shift gears here a little bit and cover some of the things that you're thinking about in terms of earnings. I know we have two tweets out today that we choose, chose as our tweet of the day. I think the first one uh, coming up is from 314's account uh, about the 10-year treasury and earnings growth. If we could pull that chart up. I think maybe we don't have that chart. We're going to get back to it. Uh, but give us a little bit of a sense in terms of where you are uh, with your framework on earnings uh, and multiple compression. Yeah, so we saw, uh, I think the probably the chart from what I remember us tweeting out today was that since the beginning of 2021, uh, you've basically seen the market flatline and all that's multiple compression because earnings are still growing in the background. It's like a 65% multiple compression since then. Uh, we look out, we think the market's really trading off of a combination of forward earnings and interest rates. And so and interest rates is a derivative of policy and data like we talked about. So forward earnings, we see 
The consensus estimate is 243 bucks a share for exit 2023. The uh, everyone on the street has marked that down already. So if we got $243 a barrel or a, a share next year, that would be received uh, bullishly by the market. We are, we're at 220 bucks a share right now. Uh, and obviously there's a big band around that right now, but 220 bucks a share and at about, you know, let's call it 4% tenure, uh, that gets you to, I think the market's about 5% undervalued right here, just using our stuff, our back of the envelope calculations. Now, you know, that's much better than we were heading into the year. We were about 30% overvalued heading into the year in our, based on our math. And we've erased the overvaluation. We're now slightly undervalued, but bear markets bottom typically with the market being about 15% undervalued. So we're not at those deep undervaluations you would expect to see where you could pound the table and say this is a major low. Our view is that you know we're entering a consolidation phase. We we thought this was a bear market for 2022. I think around this 3600 level is going to be the bottom end of the range, but rallies for now are going to be self-defeating until we get more information, more of those cars get flipped over for the data that we were talking about at the beginning of this at the, of this podcast. So yeah. 3,600 to 4,000 seems like a, the range we're going to be in for the next quarter or two. So talking about flipping those cards open, uh, let's talk a little bit about some of these uh, threads that we've pulled on here today and how they all intertwine, uh, interrelate, and give the big picture. We've talked about labor markets. We've talked about services and goods inflation. We've talked about shelter inflation. We've talked about your view on earnings. How do all of these stitch together for the big picture? Yeah, I think that uh, CPI is coming down no matter what the Fed does from here. You know, everyone's wondering 50 basis points, 75 basis points, whatever. I think CPI is already coming down for a number of reasons. And already worked through every single slice of that. And the swaps market, break-even market, it's all pointing to, you know, about 3% CPI a year from now, 25 to 3% next year. I think that's a reasonable over-under, honestly, and that oil is the real wild card here in that. So if CPI goes there, then I think the next thing you have to ask yourself is, will earnings hang in? I think if you go to $220 earnings, we're in this kind of, there's, you know, all these 2008 scenarios and really bearish scenarios are off the table. I would be, I would lean bullish, but there's nothing extraordinarily compelling, you know, and I would probably play that range a little bit. And that's how, that's how I see it. If this data moves in the way we expect, and the Fed interprets it in, from a, a more dovish perspective, which is kind of what I would lean to, then everything becomes more bullish, I think. And, uh, you know, so that's what that's how we see it. And, and ultimately, there's upside, I think, on the earning side, if the economic backdrop uh, hangs in there and all these things happen sooner rather than later. So let's talk a little bit about this call on CPI, two and a half uh, to three percent. The idea that the Fed will remain more dovish. This is obviously below consensus on CPI and more dovish uh, than consensus on the Fed. How do you get there? What are the sort of the building blocks on that thesis that bring you to that conclusion? Car prices are rolling over. Uh, if you if you consider car prices have been a huge you know driver of this move higher in CPI that we've had. Uh, and that's really supply chain bottlenecks. It, it, we're just assuming that 50% oh, of the increase we've seen post-pandemic in car prices come back. We've already seen used car prices fall at the, the fastest clip month over month. 
uh, on like the Mannheim index and some of the other channel checks you do. Used car prices lead new car prices because used car price used cars are trade-ins for new cars, so it all feeds on itself. I think car prices in general are heading uh, significantly over the next 12 months, and that's that's a obviously a positive. If oil stays just in this $90 a barrel range, which is a huge if, that's the big wild card. And that's why we're saying be long energy because you got to protect your portfolio from this. But if oil stays here, then those two things together, I think, and you hold everything else constant, can get you to about 3% CPI. Anything else you get is just going to be, you know, sweetener. The big risk, like we talked about, is this this the strange quirk in the way that OER and some of the shelter inflation is coming through right now. And, and I think next year the Fed's going to have a dilemma where shelter inflation is going to be high, but all these real-time housing and rental indices are pointing to a soft market and softening prices. And they're going to have to decide, Powell's going to have to decide, do I look through the, uh, the CPI data, which is stale, 12 to 18 months ago, like we said, or do I react to it? And so that that's a potential uh, risk to the actual CPI call. Right. Uh, but I still think the Fed could look through it. So just to clarify, you see CPI is overstating inflation the way it's calculated using owner's equivalent rent. It, it's it understates it sometimes and it overstates it sometimes. So at at the moment, I think it's overstating, but I think that overstatement's right. about to get even worse in the next six months. Yeah, very interesting. We're going to take another quick break and be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. I want to touch on something that you hit on really quickly, uh, which is energy, oil, uh, and some of the stocks uh, on that, because I know that you follow this very closely. WTI crude deck 22 uh, options right now trading at, uh, well, it looks like 85.16 on my screen. This is CL1 on the New York Merck. Uh, And I also want to mention something that you've tweeted about here, which is XOM, ExxonMobil stock. Uh, Give us a little bit of a sense on where you are uh, with that oil. Uh, forecast and also where you are in terms of your view on ExxonMobil. Well, our view has been you need to be long the energy sector. Uh, you know, if you think of the energy sector as making up five percent of the S and P five hundred right now, we think you need to be at about twenty percent in your portfolios for the energy sector, uh, even with a stock bond balance portfolio. Just given its diversifying characteristics, uh, Brian, I think we have a chart that I passed along that shows. Basically, the, yeah, this chart, you have the pairwise correlation of every single sector to other sectors plus bonds. And so the higher number indicates a negative correlation to more of these other possible pairs. So what we saw is energy just went through a period this year, and I don't think this is going to be a one-off. I think this is going to continue and be with us going forward. Energy went through a period this year where it was negatively correlated to every sector and bonds. We've never seen that before out of one equity sector. This is an unprecedented level of diversification that one sector in the equity market is giving you. You don't get this, especially with bonds. We've seen utilities trade negative to every other uh, equity sector before, but they were always correlated with bonds when that happened. This is a a real special thing that's happening and it makes energy a, a, uh, a must overweight in your portfolio. This report was from September. We've been pounding the table on this for a while, but just in October, and I think this is starting to catch on, energy sector up 21%. 
S and P 500 up four and a half percent oil up 7%. I think, you know, this is, you can't have a dramatic month like this every month, but this is the direction we're moving here because I think energy stocks in the role they play in portfolios is becoming recognized by the, the generalist out there. And so, you know, Exxon breaking out to new all time highs today, higher than the June highs that we saw for the group. That's a bellwether type of situation. That's the largest energy stock uh, in the in the S&P um, or in the market. That's going to lead, I think, the entire sector. The sector is still below those June highs. But to me, that's where we're headed. We're making new highs in the energy in the energy sector. Yeah, and it's interesting looking at the chart on WTI. Uh, those futures were trading at 122 uh, in June, and obviously rolling down quite a bit uh, to get to 85 bucks a barrel where we are uh, right now. Talking about all of this, I wanted to frame this a little bit more broadly. We obviously try to look at lots of different indicators here at Real Vision. One of the things that's interesting uh, that I was looking at earlier today uh, was a piece called "Make or Break China." Uh, this is an interview with Victor Shi, an associate professor at UC San Diego and an expert on Chinese elite politics. A conversation uh, out actually on Monday, uh, hosted by Maggie Lake on the Essential Tier, talking about COVID lockdowns. Let's take a look. Is COVID policies going to relax? Um, not in the immediate future. You know, the, it, the speech celebrated the achievements of zero COVID. Um, there was a document that was released by the party late last year saying the zero COVID, you know, was a historical achievement. Uh, so given that, you know, the pretty heavy emphasis put on the achievements of zero COVID, uh, I think it will be here to stay for the next few months at least. So that's there you have it. I think we've been talking about this uh, here for some time, the idea that the zero COVID policy is in place, uh, according to Mr. Xi, and believes it will remain in place for the foreseeable future. Uh, any thoughts on that, uh, Warren, in terms of your view or outlook? Yeah, this has been something that, if I have to be honest, this has caught me by surprise. You know, and everything I saw coming into the year was I expected normalization uh, of, uh, you know, of of China's economy and, and that this wasn't going to persist. But, you know, we put together a real-time flight tracker for the largest 20 airports uh, in China. And so we're able to see, you know, economic activity in real time. And it has just been a nonstop starting and in, in locking back down, starting and locking back down. And we we're hitting levels on those flight data that we haven't that we've only seen at the initial 2020 lockdowns. It's shocking. Uh, it is a bearish drag on the oil price, and, and truthfully, with you know over a million barrels a day SPR oil dumping on the market, plus over a million barrels of demand offline because of China, it's shocking to me that you're seeing oil at over Brent over 90 bucks a barrel. That's, you know, to me, it's only, you can only imagine if these two factors weren't here, what would we be at in, in the price of oil? I didn't see it coming, so I'm not probably the right person to predict it what going forward, but it's it's something that we're all going to have to learn to live with and work into our, our various models. But yeah, it's, it's uh, I, you know, I can't, I, it's not something that entirely makes sense to me, but, you know, we just deal with the, the world as it is, not how we want it to be. Yeah, I think that's very well said. I think this came as a surprise to a lot of us uh, who didn't expect to see this continue for so long in China. But obviously, uh, as you say, you deal with the world as it is and not as you wish it to be. And clearly, it has policy implications. By the way, you mentioned SPR there. I wanted to ask uh, one viewer question. This one comes to us from Serge W. Uh, would not the post-election end of the release of the SPR plus a possible buyback to refill and China begin to reopen their lockdowns create stickier 
levels of CPI? Interesting question. Number one, I think that there's no guarantee that SPR is going to stop right now. You know, they've already extended some SPR sales out through the end of into December. I've been saying this to clients is that you know they're under the IEA guidelines. We're a next net exporting country, and therefore we don't really need an SBR. And I could very well see Biden, the Biden administration, making that argument and saying, you know, we're going to work this SPR all the way down. We're we're in a proxy war with Russia, yada yada yada. So I wouldn't count on that necessarily. Um, number two, uh, I, th- making it sticky to the S- to the CPI. Remember, the CPI works on base effects, and we're starting to roll through some really tough comparisons. And so, you know, we were at what 140 something dollars a barrel in the spring of this year. So as to that, even if we're at 100 dollars a barrel or 95 dollars a barrel, that's a negative print on um uh, through cpi and think about this even further not to get technical but really we were at maxed out crack spreads refining margins back then so we were really on from a barrel of gasoline or diesel we were at like 200 bucks a barrel we're still kind of in that world but if we compress a little bit on those spreads and oil is only at 100 that's even more downside mm-hmm. to cpi these are things that we work through in that two and a half to three percent cpi prediction so we're not you don't need uh oil falling out of bed in order to get to a low CPI. You just need to run through these, these high base comparisons in the spring. Uh, and that's what I, you know, that we could have another spike. It's all geopolitical based and other things, but for the most part, my base case is that we're going to roll through that and that's going to be a negative drag on CPI. Interesting. Uh, and by the way, for those who don't follow the oil markets as closely as Warren does, crack spread is the spread, uh, the theoretical spread between the price of oil and the cost of margin to refine it. Uh, Warren, we've covered an incredible amount of ground here today. I just wanted to go over some of my key takeaways uh, from this conversation. Uh, in your view, CPI is coming down uh, to the 2.5 to 3.0 range uh, on the S&P 500. Warren's view is for 3,600 to 4,000 in the next quarter right now, trading at 37.52 as we close out the day here. The Fed will remain more dovish in Warren's view. Warren would lean bullish, but there's nothing extraordinary and compelling that he sees right now. Nonetheless, Warren's view, uh, he's looking for an upside on earnings. Does that characterize it roughly correctly? Yeah, I think you want to be, uh, don't be too afraid right now. I think there's a lot of fear out there. Analog charts to 2008, fade, all that stuff. Look for opportunities and weakness. If you get down below 3,600, you get more upside, you know, given the range I just outlined. So, yep. Or we've got about 30 seconds left as we sum this up. Any key points, key takeaways that you'd like to leave our viewers with? Uh, <laughs> just like I said, don't get, don't, don't buy into too much fear down at 3,600. I don't think that's going to pay for you. So, you know, don't fall, don't, don't take the last 12 months and extrapolate it out. Macro people on podcasts like to tell stories about how inflation is going to be with us forever. I'd fade all that. Great. Nice and succinct. Really appreciate you joining us today. Great conversation, Warren. Thank you. Appreciate it. Thanks for watching the Real Vision Daily Briefing. We'll be back Monday. Have a great weekend, everybody. What's up, revolutionaries? Thanks for tuning in to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. For more content like this, head over to realvision.com and get unfiltered access to the very best, brightest, and biggest names in finance. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.